live from the Financial Things Studios. It's the Peer-to-Peer Lending Essentials Podcast. Welcome to the Financial Thing Peer-to-Peer Lending Essentials Podcast. I am your ever-capable host, as always, Lawrence Samuels. This is the podcast that brings you all the information and news about peer-to-peer lending and crowdfunding and anything that's going on in the investment world. And very excited today, have a very, very, very special guest. I know I say that every week, but every week the uh, guests, they become increasingly more special. So today we have a great guest. Uh, We have Stephen Finley, who is the CEO of Bond Mason. I want to give you listeners and viewers a chance to uh, meet the person behind Bond Mason so you can see what's going on and find out more about the company. So, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, incessantly busy schedule to come and uh, spend a few minutes or hopefully a little bit more than that time with me on on the interview here. How are you doing today, Stephen? Very good, Lawrence, and, uh, and thank you for having me. appreciate the time and, uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I know I've, be, I've been trying to get you on uh, to do this for a little while, and, and we've been going back and forth, so it's great to finally have you. I wanted to, to tell you a quick joke. You look like a guy that enjoys a joke, so here's one for you. What do you call a guy that has rubber toes? Don't know. Roberto. <laughs> Now, I'm a dad with, with two, two young children, four and two, and I found myself um, making jokes like that, which I'd class as dad jokes. <laughs> it just sort of naturally evolved, and I don't know if you have children yourself, Lawrence, but um, that's the sort of thing I'd be proud proud to come out with, much to the dismay of my wife, but um, I like that. Feel, feel free to use that one. It's completely royalty-free. So, Stephen, I, I was looking at your on your website at the list of your employees and their photos and I was trying to figure out who is the biggest joker and just going off the photos I'm probably wrong about this but Karen De Silva looks like she can have a good time <laughs> would I be right accurate in saying that um I think there's um what could I say um I think the team there's I try to give a, a, a bland corporate answer, but genuinely, you, people talk about cultures and businesses, and I feel very fortunate to work with the with the people that we work with. And I think you know one of the main reasons for that is, without exception, no one in the team takes themselves too seriously. Now we do do a serious job, and it's you know absolutely vital that you know we're custodians for people's hard-earned money, and that's not lost upon us. You know that's absolutely key. Um, but you know, in amongst and across across each other, you know, we know how to um, yeah have the mickey taken out of ourselves and 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 to reciprocate with that and um i think in terms of the biggest joker that's difficult i'd actually probably put that at james wallace's feet to be honest james Um, wallace so james and i uh we trained as accountants together about 20 years ago so it's it's rare that accountants get that the tag of being (laughs) the biggest joker but maybe yeah. maybe we have to do that to to fight the uh, to fight the tagging of being an accountant. I don't, I don't know, but um, no, he's uh, he's certainly one to keep us entertained. That's for he, certain. He, he looks very serious in this photograph. That's why I did not pick him out as my number one choice. He <laughs> yeah. just looks so serious. Exactly. Right. Well, that's that's the impression he wants to give, right? I mean, he's, a, he's an accountant that worked in credit for fifteen years. So um, yeah, he has to he, he has to give that persona. Well, just to go, just goes to show that you can never judge a book by its cover, right? That's good. So, Stephen, um, 
Tell me a little bit about why on earth did you establish Bon Mason? It, it's not an easy undertaking what you do. I know from just my own investing and what you do must be extremely complicated. So why on earth did you establish Bon Mason? It's a good question. And I think like most companies, it was really born out of a desire to solve a problem that I sort of found personally. So it wasn't as if we'd sort of sat down with a blank piece of paper and tried to create you know, some strategic vision for a startup or a business. It was merely a frustration that I had. I was doing a an amount of P2P lending on, on a small basis, but on a personal capacity. And I found it very, very difficult to do the type of diligence that I wanted to do, particularly on the platforms themselves. Uh, and specifically, I wanted to be able to go to meet the people, talk to them, understand their backgrounds and their experiences, um, and use that to inform my investment decision in terms of which loans to go into, which more importantly, which platforms to use. And there was no one really at that point, this is sort of 2013, late 2013, early 2014, who was doing that. Um, and that's really where the idea, idea came from. And through the course of you know, 12, 18 months prior to our launch in October 2015, uh, we did a number of things to progress that and sort of test it. But equally, we had to do quite a lot of work to build out not just sort of the legal and regulatory aspects of what we do, but also the technological aspects of what we do. Uh, we wanted to stay true to, I think, you know, the core element of peer-to-peer -peer lending, which is to have it accessible to all lenders of different shapes and sizes. Um, and that's really where the idea came from, from Bond Mason, was to enable lenders to better navigate and access the returns available to them through the, through the direct lending or peer-to-peer -peer lending landscape. Um, so it was born out of a personal requirement and then uh, a desire to you know, share that and provide that service to others. Mm -hmm. that, that's usually where the greatest business uh, ideas come from, isn't it? Through personal struggles of something that you're trying to achieve yourself and you find it so difficult. And peer-to-peer -peer lending certainly can be difficult when you're trying to maximize your returns. If you want to take a low return, uh, you can set everything on auto-invest and go forward. But if you're really trying to do a lot of due diligence to maximize returns, it can be extremely difficult and time-consuming. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, we would tend to use the phrase optimize rather than maximize, and I don't want to get sort of too into the nitty-gritty, but I think for us with peer-to-peer -peer lending, um, there's a very wide range of opportunities available to lenders um, across the spectrum. And you know, we sort of cite at one end of the spectrum, you can go into a buy-to-let loan at maybe 3 or 4% per annum with a sensible loan-to-value, and you know, hopefully highly unlikely to lose you know, the loan going to default and if it does hopefully unlikely to lose much capital if any at all whereas at the under, other end of the spectrum you might go into something which is unsecured to a consumer who perhaps has a subprime credit rating and maybe they're attracting you know 25 30 percent per annum and everything in between and i think the way that we look at it is it's not to say one is better than the other there's just a real range of options there and we particularly position ourselves at the more conservative end of the market. So we look to target, you know, seven to eight percent gross return across a very well diversified portfolio of lending opportunities, but equally not take too much risk in those opportunities as well. So as soon as things are priced even you know, 11, 12 percent and above, that that's really where we start getting quite nervous. Um, mm -hmm. And we, we want to understand exactly why the borrower is taking out the finance at that level of pricing and what's the commercial reason for it um so in our view it's about 
optimizing. So you can place your capital wherever you want on that risk spectrum and that clearly is entirely up to you but within that risk spectrum it's you know making sure that the return is is coming through as you hope um and that's really what we spend a lot of our time doing you had mentioned Stephen, that previously you had personally invested in peer-to-peer lending do you still continue to invest in other companies outside of bond mason when it comes to peer-to-peer so on the peer-to-peer lending side, for reasons of sort of conflict of interest, I have to keep everything within the Bond Mason umbrella. Um, and as a key function of the way that our service works, the first sort of first step in the process is there's a Bond Mason entity which goes into the loans. Um, and that Bond Mason entity is 100% funded by myself. So that entity is an active lender in the marketplace. Um, and that is my ability to participate. Sadly, I'm then restricted with what I can do outside of that. I would love to be able to be a client of Bond Mason if I could on the other side, but for structural reasons, I can't do that. Um, but I think the market is you know, is very, very appealing. You know, my desire to deploy more capital has only increased you know, over the last three to five years as I've learned more about it and uh, become better versed um, in the opportunities that are available. Just so I understand this correctly, because I, I remember several months ago, I put a graphic up on my website about exactly the structure of how Bond Mason invested into peer-to-peer loans. And you had emailed me and said that the graphic wasn't quite right. And I, I don't think I've ever truly really understood exactly how Bond Mason does this. Now, are you saying that you fund personally all of the peer-to-peer lending and then it kind of flows down to the lenders as a secondary step. Is that correct? Correct. The key sort of, without getting into too much detail, we're you know, ha- happy to at a point in time, but the um, the key rationale for that is to enable our clients to be well diversified. So that's why the structure is put in place in that way. And specifically what we do is if we take, say, a £100,000 position in a particular loan, we may divide that up into chunks as small as £10 um, and anything up to you know, £10,000 and everything in between. And what we, the tool we use to do that is something called a receivables agreement, which essentially passes the economics through the chain to the underlying, you know, to our clients, to the underlying investors. Um, and that construct is put in place as it doesn't inhibit our ability to get into what we consider to be the best lending opportunities. So we can do that in a meaningful way at a decent size. And then whether a client is ready to take the economics of that immediately, or maybe they join the platform later, or maybe they have reinvestment capital coming through that they want to you know, reinvest and deploy later, that's not then restricted to merely the opportunities that are available to them at that point in time and looking forward. There can be you know, a warehouse of opportunities which is ready for them to participate in in whatever size fits their needs. And really, that was the, the rationale for the construct that we have, which admittedly isn't uh, necessarily easy to A, put in place, or B, replicate. It took us a good two years to, to get there. Um, but I think what's great for our clients, as I say, is they can get access to 50 to 100 plus uh, receivables, which relate to 50 to 100 plus or more underlying loans, and they're very well diversified, even if they're deploying, you know, a thousand pounds or five thousand pounds, you know, at that sort of level. Is an investor 
who puts money into Bond Mason actually lending money to Bond Mason itself? No, so that so the, it's all segregated for bankruptcy purposes. So there's Bond Mason Group Limited, which is the operator of bondmason.com, and that's the operating business, mm-hmm. um, and that's the business that uh, you know, hires the staff, pays the wages, rents the office out, etc., so on and so forth. Um, and against that, that's the business which has the the fee income from the clients, so the one percent fee income from our clients. So that's sort of the the profit and loss account, if you will, for mm-hmm. Bond Mason Group Limited. The entity that I talked about there, which goes into loan positions, is a group called Bond Mason Client Limited. Mm-hmm. That is a separately identifiable limited company, which is not related to Bond Mason Group Limited, and Bond Mason Client Limited is purely there essentially as the balance sheet entity. So Bond Mason Client Limited will go into a, you know, a number of loans. The economics of those loans are sold down directly to clients and there's a clear relationship from end to end for the exposure that client has and the ultimate default risk going through to the to the end borrower, if that makes sense. So the two... Uh, the operating company and the sort of the investment structure are, are you know, very well or in completely segregated. Okay, so as with traditional peer-to-peer lending uh, through your traditional peer-to-peer lending companies, the peer-to-peer lender has a direct agreement with the borrower, but Bond Mason does not that work that way. Correct. So people within who invest money in Bond Mason do not have direct agreements with the actual loan borrowers. That's, am I right in that's, saying that? That's absolutely correct. So they have, yeah. um, in every case, they have what's called a receivable agreement with Bond Mason Client Limited as a counterparty, but that references the underlying loan, and Bond Mason Client Limited immediately just you know, turns around, if you will, and is linked through to the underlying loan. So there's a direct relationship from the borrower to our end client there's a step in the middle but there is a direct relationship economically through that chain how have you been dealing with the fca when it comes to your business because you're very much different to every other peer-to-peer company out there and i know you're trying to get authorization you've been trying for a while has that been a problem because of the way it's set up and operated i think we 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 certainly are different to every other peer-to-peer platform that's out there um some days I really wish we weren't because it does make it for an interesting journey. Um, but, you know, look, at anything that's easy probably isn't isn't worth doing. And I think where you know, our journey with the FCA has, has been um, one of, I think probably working in almost in, in collaboration is probably a fair way of stating it. So we were one of the first groups to be accepted on the FCA's Innovation Hub back in April 2015. So the FCA's Innovation Hub is there to support innovative business models which are deemed to be essentially adding additional services or products to the benefit of retail clients in particular and where the FCA recognize that their current regulatory framework doesn't necessarily fit the business model particularly well. So we were identified you know, as a good candidate to go onto that program. And really, since that point in time, we've been in dialogue with the FCA across a number of different levels around what we do, how it's structured, um, in a back and forth kind of way, but in a positive kind of way. So our view is, um, well, not what is certainly considered to be the case is that our current model sits out outside the current regulatory framework. 
the model that we've just discussed there. In our view, we think it should sit inside the regulatory framework. So we've stated on a few occasions with the FCA, we feel that there is an unintended loophole that we want to close. And, you know, we're looking to work with them to do that. The FCA, I have a lot of sympathy for. You know, they are there to implement the rules and regulations as laid out by the HM, HMR, HM Treasury. So the Treasury stipulates what the rules are and the FCA then go and implement them. So even if the FCA, uh, which a number of the, the individuals have sort of said, yes, we agree, we think that makes sense, they need to wait for the Treasury to go through a cycle of then amending the rules before then sort of we then fit within that nice, nice neat little box to, to be ticked. Now, Having said all that, we applied for some additional permissions in December 2015, which would extend the scope of our activities uh, to include things like, um, for example, going into consumer loans. So we don't do any consumer lending at the moment. Um, and also, in some cases, to enable our underlying clients to be named on the underlying borrower agreements. So to take out that that middle step that we described before, um, if required and if desired. Um, and that application is continuing to be reviewed by the FCA sort of you know, 15, 16 months later. It's being progressed. And again, you know, I'm not going to use that timing as an opportunity to, to beat up the FCA. I think they've got a lot of a lot of cases they need to review. And you know, our view here, you know, the investment team has you know, individually, we've all got 15 to 20 plus years in financial services community. We would far rather the FCA took its time and got it right than felt obliged to rushed through a backlog of applications and ended up with some operators that you know, it really had regretted giving permissions to. So, you know, we've got sympathy with the, with the workload that the FCA has on at the moment um, and we're supportive around what they're trying to do in this space. Um, as it pertains to ourselves, it's a little bit frustrating, I guess, that you know, we can't tick that box, but we see that really as a, as a function of time rather than anything else. And, and you know, that should come through in the, in the at some point in the near future. In our view, the FCA really is there to ensure there is a you know a minimum level of standards across the industry. It's not there to guarantee returns or guarantee uh, performance. And the analogy we would use is that of the fund management sector, which is just because you have permissions to be a fund manager doesn't mean you're going to deliver you know eight to ten percent performance year after year after year, or indeed in any year. And I think the same is true of peer-to-peer -peer lending. I think just because a peer-to-peer -peer lender has the fully authorized FCA permissions, it does not mean they're going to deliver you good returns. And I think a lot of lenders need to to remember that. You know, it, is, it is there to say that you know, the FCA have looked at the business model. It meets a certain level of um, you know, parameters and conditions that it needs to meet. And the processes are in place you know, to, to deliver on that. But the quality of the execution is then down to the team. It's not down to the FCA. And I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of people are, are putting too much weight, in my view, on the FCA approval and saying, look, we've got approval. Aren't we great? Or other people are saying that for them. And I think that's a real mistake. And I think that's potentially quite misleading because I think the, the FCA is merely there to say, look, here are the rules. This is, company meets those rules and their business model and processes have been set out in such a way that they should be able to adhere to that sensibly and effectively. It does not say or infer anything about the quality of the lending returns that will then come through each platform. And I think that's a really, really important point. Stephen, is, is Bond Mason open to uh, US 
residents do you allow? Do you have anybody over in the U.S. or do you not allow investors from the U.S.? At present, we don't. And the only reason for that is FATCA. Mm -hmm. So FATCA is a tax legislation requirement in the U.S. whereby any financial services business globally that markets to and accepts a certain level of U.S based investors or not even US based just a US taxpayer so they can be resident here in the UK or, or elsewhere um, places an onus and requirement on those financial services businesses to report back to the US authorities every quarter and as soon as you're on that reporting uh, list you can't get off it even if it's a nil report you still have to report every quarter mm -hmm. um, and for us uh, we're not at a stage where we want to take on that level of admin burden so Mm -hmm. For now, uh, we're not accepting U.S. taxpayers and U.S. Um, citizens, um, which is a real shame because we'd love to be able to. But it's purely because of that, in our view, quite onerous taxation reporting requirements um, that we were sort of steering clear of that. Yeah, you don't want to be on any type of government list or either. Believe me, it's not a good place <laughs> to be. So... Tell me a little bit about, if you would, Stephen, about how Bond Mason chooses which loans... Um, it purchases on behalf of the of the lenders. I think I just want to sort of put in front of that that for us the most important uh, exercise is the platform selection. So that is significantly more important than the loan selection. And I, I don't mean to state that to avoid the question. I will certainly sure. tell you what, what we like and don't like in terms of loans. Mm -hmm. But for us, the most important thing is platform selection. So we've reviewed over eighty different direct lending platforms and p2p lending platforms uh, but we've only approved and invested in 23 so far um, and you know really what are we looking for there we're looking for an experienced credit team so people that understand how to price credit they've got a strong view on what's good what's bad and, and how to manage borrowers um, and then ally that with you know a clear method of origination so particularly as platforms grow and the market matures, if platforms haven't got clear origination uh, or a strategy or methodology around that, then inevitably they'll be competing most, most commonly on price, and that goes to returns. And if a platform merely says, well, look, we'll outmarket the rest of the competition by spending more money on marketing or you know, doing what everyone else is doing, then it's not a concern for us, but it certainly is something that we, we take note of. We much prefer groups that can sort of say, look, here's our origination methodology. We've been operating in a particular market in a particular space for a number of years. It may be people that have worked in a particular geographical region for you know, traditional lending institutions like banks for a number of years, say 20 odd years, and have lots of relationships with local accountants, local lawyers, all those sorts of things. So are well connected into the local business community. And really they're bringing those relationships to bear for their platform. Um, or it can be things whereby, you know, the sort of, uh, I guess, more innovative end people who have a plug-in to, say, online accountancy software and can originate through that. So you know, we can pre-identify a cash flow need for a small company and provide them with a 30-day overdraft facility to enable them to, to get through that or enable them to discount their invoices more easily than anyone else. So. It's not to say that we're focused on a traditional method of origination. We just like to see a differentiated method of origination. So platform selection for us is is the most key and most important element of diligence. 
And then within the loan selection to ask, answer your question, yeah, we're certainly at the more conservative end. So we approve about one in three loans that we see from those approved platforms. And what we're looking for there really is some sort of asset-backed nature to to the loan. About three quarters of what we do has a property component of one form or another. Um, so again, if defaults come through, then the levels of recovery should be quite high. And that's really what we're looking for. Um, the sort of second layer within that is obviously pricing. So I think it's really important to stay robust on pricing uh, and that's in both directions. So just because something's priced at 6% doesn't mean it's safe and just because something's priced at 12% doesn't mean it's necessarily risky. I think every opportunity needs to be considered in its own light um, and that's what we try and, and try and do as best we can. We're not trying to second guess the credit scoring of the underlying platform, particularly once we've gone that through that extensive due diligence process. We have a good feel for, for what the team are likely to show us. Um, but we, you know, that is a frame of reference for us when we then make those loan selections. That's very smart. It, it sort of goes along with what I've been writing about over the last year being that I think many lenders overlook the experience of the company directors and the staff more in favor of looking too much at the product and the lender return. So it sounds like you really follow that same thinking on if the team is, is experienced and they know what they're doing, it's a lot safer place to put your money versus uh, just a, a platform that's offering higher returns but may not have a very experienced team. Completely agree. I, you, you, couldn't echo that strongly enough. I think that's absolutely critical. And just as a, just as sort of a interesting aside to that particular point, I think there's some interesting debate in the in industry around having sort of what people call skin in the game. And quite often that gets, you know, from a platform's perspective, that gets um, viewed in the context of do they invest alongside other lenders and that having skin in the game that way, which we we like to see, by the way, you know. It, but equally, it doesn't have to be there. But we, you know, we like to see that sort of level of alignment. But equally, we talked about there about experienced credit teams. You know, their skin in the game is their reputation. You know, they've been credit experts for 20 years. Their track record of whatever they do over the next three to five years, regardless of whether it's in a big bank or whether it's on a P2P lending platform, is going to stay with them. And for us, that's just as important. When we think about skin in the game. It's those people trying to manage their own reputations and credit um, well, credit uh, returns, if you will, performance, um, that's absolutely vital. So yeah, all these things need to be considered when, you, when you're looking at the people behind the platforms. One of the things that's always concerned me as a lender and is, is profitability. I know that a company has to be profitable at some time. And some of the companies that I've looked at, I have a fear uh, especially some of the smaller ones that they're operating at a loss and I wonder how long can that happen for it's very difficult to know at the end of the day because company accounts there's just so many creative ways to uh, defer tax liabilities depreciation things like that I'm not an accountant I know you are. I'm sure you understand much more about that than I do but simply looking at a company's accounts doesn't really give you the financial health of the company with regards to bond mason's profitability have you gotten to a point where the company is profitable yet and if not when do you expect that would happen for you sure so so not yet the intention is to do that 
on a monthly basis within the next 12 months or so. Um, we've been funded by a broad base of angel investors to date, okay. um, and we're very grateful for the support that they've given us. We recognize from the outset that our business model is essentially an annuity income business model. So because we are charging 1% per annum on the invested capital that goes through our platform, um, it will take longer for us to be profitable as opposed to us being, say, a transaction fee-based business whereby you're taking you know, 3 to 4% on every deal that you see. Mm-hmm. So we've always known that our revenue curve would be shallower, uh, certainly initially, but should be more sustainable. And so that was sort of the economic premise on which we set the company up. Um, so we, yeah, we're very pleased with actually with, with where we are. We're sort of ahead of all of our projections, which is which is great. Um, and you know what we're looking to do is build a business over you know, the next ten to twenty years. Um, I think that's reflective of the opportunity, but also the asset class. You know, I think this should become a pension grade asset class um, and from my previous experience at Fidelity you know that was a business that was built out over sort of 40 to 60 years being very consistent in its approach being very conservative in its approach uh, and those are certainly some of the things that, that we admire uh, and some of the things that we're looking to bring to the table with Bon Mason so um, in terms of profitability to answer the question directly not yet it's it's on the horizon um and it's sort of you know well within our immediate future which which we're yeah we feel pretty comfortable about so bond mason as a company has enough funding behind it to continue without being profitable in the unforeseeable future i take it that's right that's that's the that's the aim we did a, our most recent funding round uh closed uh, in the middle of last year and that gave us a couple of years of sort of what we call cash runway, so a couple of years to, to become profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in those projections, which, as I say, we're, we're ahead of. Um, it may be we look for additional funding at a point in time, but um, it's certainly not a requirement for us for us to do that at, at the moment. So, um, yeah, we, we feel pretty comfortable with where we are on that front. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm a, a very big advocate of tracker funds. Anything to do with managed unit trusts, mutual funds. I read a book by John Bogle, who was the founder of uh, Vanguard back in the 70s, and it, it really opened my eyes to how damaging fees can be to an investor over the long period of time, 30, 40 years. So I became a big advocate of index trackers, and financial advisors hate me because I, <laughs> that, you know, they don't make any money off those types of things. What I'm realizing that bond mason is more like a peer-to-peer unit trust in in many ways. I think the asset classes are a little bit different, to be yeah. to be honest. And I think um, our role um, really is. I understand why you use the term management there, but really it's around filtering. So there's a piece there, which which is I guess a subtle distinction across from management, which is really just to say, let's try and remove. Um, some of what we feel will be the worst performers. So as opposed to the stock market, let's just run this analogy a bit further. In the stock market, you know, your upside is in theory unlimited. You could choose a great stock, could turn a 10x return, you know, you're hailed as a hero, everyone's happy. Equally, it could go to zero. And you know, people are trying to do that 
day after day or algorithmic traders second after second mm-hmm. and that's the the model in in the stock market um and importantly it's accessible to everyone so anyone can go buy a stock tomorrow if they want to they can set up a brokerage account and they can pay their five dollar commission fee whatever it is and and buy a stock p2p lending i think there's a couple of key distinctions one is your upside is capped so your upside really is just the return interest rate of return you're going to get on the loans that you've gone into so mm-hmm. that's as good as it'll be you know, if the underlying company or the property development significantly outperforms you will only get your 10 percent return or your eight percent return um, so therefore it's really around managing the downside that's how you get better returns in this marketplace so we see our role in that context as really as filtering so what we're trying to filter out is those things that could lead to unexpected or larger downsides and then hence why platform selection is so important more so than loan filtering and the thing we haven't touched upon in this conversation yet is diversification that's sort of the third thing that's absolutely key getting people up to 50 ideally 100 plus different underlying loan exposures that's really key to performance here so i think that that is you know a, a distinction from the stock picking idea and the other one is then access so yes there are some platforms that you can open an account tomorrow on and maybe get access to some loans on um but really what we're doing at bond mason is about 40 percent of the loans that we go into are now outside what we'd call traditional p2p lending platforms Mm -hmm. so we've created a legal uh construct to work with speciality lenders so these are often very experienced bridged finance property bridge finance lending companies that maybe have 20 to 50 million pounds under management and we go then directly into the loans that they are doing so we're then providing access into a marketplace or into underlying set of assets and lending opportunities that our clients simply could not access themselves you know those are not available in quite a lot of cases those are exclusive relationships we then have so we are the only other party participating in those loans alongside from those groups and their own balance sheet mm-hmm. um, so i think that really is what i what our clients like to see from us is that filtering that diversification and then um, distribution into assets and quality loans that you know they simply cannot cannot access themselves I know one of the biggest problems within peer-to-peer lending at the moment is supply and demand. Um, You have discussed previously about cash drag. Cash drag is basically where your money's sitting around in an account and not earning any interest because it's not deployed into an investment. Peer-to-peer lenders face this problem all the time. The demand is so much higher than the supply. It sounds like you've attempted to really solve that issue by going out and finding different sources of, of lending opportunities. No, I, th- I think that's right. I think cash drag is, is is an important issue, and it's certainly an emotive issue, particularly for us and our clients. Um, we say on average it can take you know, 28 days to get fully invested when you first deposit your funds through Bond Mason. Um, in some cases, people have been able to do it in a couple of days, and other times it's taken as long as 40 days, really, depending on that sort of supply-demand equation. But we're always happier to be um, beaten up, if you will, by our clients for slower than typical deployment because we'd much rather stick to the quality of the loan opportunities and prioritize that over getting deployed quickly. And as soon as you look at this sort of asset class, the whole period as being sort of a 12-month-plus investment opportunity, that initial cash drag 
doesn't make a whole lot of difference to your overall returns. You're kind of talking about 10, maybe 20 basis points, so 0.1, 0.2% by the end of the year. And that is far more important to, to be willing to bear that and be patient with deploying capital than it is to sort of rush out the door and go into some loans that you, you, know, you really regret and end up defaulting. And um, that's yeah, that's definitely the bias that, that we have here. But as you've identified, you know, what we're looking the way that we look to solve cash drag as, as we grow our own business is really go into that traditional lending market. You know, it's, it's a big fragmented market. It's well established here in the UK. Um, a lot of them are looking at peer-to-peer lending as a threat. So a lot of them have been balance sheet lenders for 20 odd years. They see P2P lending coming down the road. They wonder about how they can hedge against it. Um, and you know that's why I guess they like talking to us because they see us as a conduit to P2P lending capital without the requirement for them to set up a website or you know onboard lenders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it seems to resonate. It seems to work, work quite well both for the, the groups that we work with but also our, our lenders as well. I have this secret fantasy about working in a bank God. <laughs> the only reason why, though, is because I've always wanted to be able to see what other people's bank balances are like. That that might be a really depressing thing, or it might be a really enlightening <laughs> thing to say, wow, I, I don't have very much money, or I have more money than I thought. What's the biggest investment that a single investor has put in the bond mason? So the average is uh, a shade over £15,000. Uh, the average across P2P generally is somewhere between 10 and 20,000 pounds depending on how you look at it you know, means or medians uh, and the range is at the moment is from a thousand pounds at the small end to the top end I think the biggest client has about one and a half million with us something like that and then it's a, there's a wide range in between our priority our concern I mean we, you know, through the FCA there's this notion of you know, treating customers fairly which is very very important you need to treat them equally our view is as long as we look after our smallest investors, then it should work well for everyone else. And that's really our, our focus and our, our time and attention. And I think what's really, really important and one of our bugbears in the industry with some of the operators is people forget that this is other people's money. You know, this is people's hard-earned savings that they're looking for a better home with because maybe their interest rates are too low in their bank or maybe they've got a bit disillusioned and disenfranchised with the stock market and they're looking for a slightly different sort of risk-return profile and that's why they come to P2P lending. But people have worked hard quite often to, you know, to get this money in the first place and really all we are as custodians for that capital. We need to make sure that at the end of the year it's still there and ideally there's a, you know, a nice return on top. Um, and that really cuts through everything that we do. And that is our frustration when we go to some of these platform diligence meetings that that's not always true. You know, some of these platforms see it really or see themselves as more of a brokerage, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with a brokerage model, but it's very clear their focus is not on the credit quality. It is on being able to write new loans, take their 4% or 3% or 2% arrangement fee, and then move on to the next loan. And that, I think, is where the industry needs to to step up a little bit. Some of those platforms need to say, well, hang on a minute. You know, the lenders, there's a, there is an information asymmetry. The lenders aren't able to speak to the borrowers directly in most cases. Um, they aren't able to get a, a feel and a sense for what the opportunity should be priced like and, and how that should work. And I think there should be... So, yeah, we, we put this into the submission on the FCA review in September of last year. In our view, 
for every P2P lending platform, there should be a nominated credit officer. So there should be a, specifically per, a specific person who you can point to and say, that person, uh, you know, he or she is putting their neck on the line in terms of the quality of the credit that we underwrite and we make available to our lender community. And I think that is you know, what we what we should see and is what we want to see. And that will then go some way to ensuring that people's capital you know, is protected and people there's a, a real awareness that this really is other people's money. And that's such an important phrase. The investment management community, I think, understands quite well. You need to protect and be a custodian for, for other people's capital. When we were talking before we fired up this podcast, you mentioned to me that you were somewhat of a controversial person, that sometimes you say controversial things. So again, I have to ask you this. You don't have to answer if you don't want. Since you've sat down and met with many of these platforms, which as lenders, we don't get the opportunity to do, do you want to mention a couple of companies that you thought, well, I'm not really sure that, that protecting or that then thinking this is people's hard-earned money is their number one priority? I prefer not to, if I'm honest. I mean, I think um, for a number of different reasons, I think it's always better to talk about things that are positive and that are good in the industry. Um, and I think there's a lot of operators that are good and do get the importance of looking after other people's money um, you know, and really take that to heart. And over a period of time you know that will bear out it'll be quite apparent as to who are you know, the better operators in terms of treating their customers fairly it's not you know the world isn't perfect equally so you know just because people are trying to do the right thing doesn't mean they'll necessarily succeed equally people who aren't doing the right thing doesn't mean they'll necessarily fail so you know, sadly it won't always work out as, as one might hope it will um, but you know, on balance, playing the averages, I think what we'll see over the next two to five years is what we sort of call a flight to quality in the industry, whereby you know, the operators either sort of step up or, or step out. And that's either because they choose to or because lenders become disillusioned with what they're seeing. And um, I think time will answer that question. How, how do lenders know, you know wh where the problems are happening and what to watch out for? I think the most extreme example of that, obviously, is that I think the Chinese company Isabo, which was clearly, or it's, it's been reported as such, was you know a fraudulent scenario. And I think, you know, how can you protect against fraud? I think that's that's a difficult one because clearly people will try that in every stage in the transaction, and um, it's a, it's a hard one to identify. I think the one around um, consistent underperformance is somewhat clearer. So, as I say, sometimes that might be bad luck. You, know, you can't always say consistent performance is because people don't know what they're doing. Um, but I think over time, generally, in more cases than not, the consistent underperformance performers probably have something wrong in their process or their mindset or the systems, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be the litmus test over the next couple of years is – you know, the average term of a lot of these loans that we're seeing you know, is between nine months and two years. So really, it takes three to five years per platform to see whether or not the defaults um, are in line with what you'd expect or not. And I think that's where we are now. I think we're coming up to a point in 2017, 2018, 
where a lot of these platforms started growing last year, the year before. And a lot of what they did last year, the year before, and this year are going to start coming through into the results. And I think the investors will see firsthand um, how that plays out. And then I think there is the more, so that's quite objective. I think the more subjective parts are, you know, what is their approach to trying to recover lender capital in the event that things do go bad? How do they yeah. communicate? How do they respond? How hard do they work to do that? And that's just as important. I think that's a good identifier for um, you know, the types of counterparties that lenders will want to work with. You know, do they genuinely care that they'll get the recovery or have they brushed it under the carpet and just try to move on to the next thing? That's good advice. Watch out for the performance returns of the company and see if you see any red flags. That would be your warning sign as a lender. Where do you see lender interest returns heading in the next year due to these interest rate drops? We've seen a lot of peer-to-peer company platforms dropping their interest rate returns that they're offering to lenders. Do you think that's going to hold steady for the next 12 months? Do you see it significantly dropping? I don't see interest rates dropping as necessarily a function of Brexit. Um, I'm, yeah probably not the world's greatest economist but my expectation would probably be the opposite you know if you are going to enter a period of uncertainty and granted you know different commentators have different views of what brexit will mean i think the one consistency thing is it's going to increase uncertainty and with increased uncertainty comes increased risk so one would expect increased pricing on loans that's just kind of a natural function of what you know how that plays out i think equally um if, as we've seen, this, you know, we're very UK-centric in our lending, so apologies for this being a very UK-centric view. Um, as we've seen, the, the you know, GBP is, has softened. What will naturally happen is inflation will start coming into the system. So we'll start importing inflation as things like dollar-denominated products, uh, you know, oil, etc., energy um, comes in and comes through you know, the products and services that are being provided here in the UK. And with increased inflation, again, you'd expect interest rates to go up. So both with increased uncertainty, increased inflation, you'd expect the rates to go up, not to go down. Now, I do appreciate there's an argument around borrowers or other lenders maybe tightening their criteria, and therefore that's why rates are dropping. Um, so you know, if you do a 60% LTV loan, it should be 6% as opposed to maybe a 7%. 70% LTV loan, perhaps. Um, but if you're taking two 70% LTV loans, one three years ago and one today, I would expect the pricing to be similar, if not somewhat higher than what it was back then. And actually, I think in P2P lending land, you're right, we're not necessarily seeing that. And I think you're know, one of the reasons behind that, I think it comes back to the sort of point we talked about a bit earlier on around origination. I think what we're seeing is some platforms looking to do deals at slightly lower prices to increase market share rather than necessarily um, you know, pushing the extra 50 bips on the percentage point because they're maybe a bit nervous or cautious about, about losing that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why, um, why some of the rates have come down a little bit. How much of a challenge was it to get to the point where you are now today with your tech? Is it, has it been a large financial expense? Um, it's been a it's been a real challenge, but we haven't tried to run too fast too quickly. I think that's quite important because I think that's when things go wrong. So, um, for my own experiences, um, prior to to sort of starting Bond Mason, I worked in 
venture capital and private equity. So I was investing in tech businesses for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a, a degree of awareness around some of the bumps and pitfalls that you need to avoid to try and grow and scale a tech business successfully. Um, but tech really is is at our core. And of our first six employees, half of those were you know, programmers and, and developers. And that's absolutely essential to to how we started out and to, to everything we, we do. And we talk about our business being you know, a third, a third, a third, which is a third technology, a third sort of investment, and then a third client support and, and marketing. And um, you know, technology is absolutely at the core of, of what we do and how we're able to deliver it. But I think equally that's an important point. It's, it's a system that delivers the information, the administration, but it's not a system that creates the investment decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Investment for us is still a subjective, um, judgmental, human-led thing, um, and that will always be our, our view on that. Stephen, what is the single biggest challenge that, that Bond Mason itself faces as a company? Sustained, sensible growth, I think, is kind of the key challenge. And as anecdotally an example of that is we've been approached now by a number of large groups international groups looking to deploy 100 million plus into direct lending and our challenge really is is to resist that until we feel that we're capable to do that on a on a sensible basis um for reasons of cash drag that we talked about before for reasons also of keeping to our you know, credit disciplines, not chasing lower prices to just deploy more capital. And you know, as we grow, and we're very flattered by those approaches, by the way, it's very, very nice to, to, to have those come in, um, is just to stay, you know, stick to our knitting. Um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a boring accountant at, at heart, and that, that's what we're going <laughs> to continue to do, is just continue to be consistent, continue to be boring, um, and just do that in a, in a sensible, sustainable way. I remember reading previously in the past about, was it Lord Turner, his comments on peer-to-peer lending and how anybody who invested in peer-to-peer was basically an idiot is what he was saying. It was very risky and it's going to make us all look like fools. Um, It was a really bad piece of media um, put out there. What do you think it's going to take for crowdfunding and peer-to-peer lending to be widely recognized as a viable form of investing for your average Joe consumer on the street because right now the consensus is it's incredibly risky. You're going to lose your money. Uh, We know that as lenders isn't to be true. What's it going to take for the general public to understand this is really a viable form of, you know, good fixed income investing? Yeah, and I think also in Lord Turner, he's since turned around and backtracked on those comments. So yes, uh, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Typical um, politician, right? I, I, just to be slightly controversial here, I don't think it's necessarily without risk. You know, I think it can be very, very risky as an investment, and it really comes back to the point I made earlier about where you want to spend your time and deploy your capital. You know, you can. As I say, it's the same analogy, and it's still true an hour later, that you can do the buy-to-let thing at 3%, or you can go to something very risky and unsecured and subprime at 30% per annum at the other end and everything in between. And I think when I think about peer-to-peer lending, it's not a homogenous asset class. You can choose different buckets to put your capital into, 
and seek very different risk return profiles and i think that's that's the key th- the key message here is it's not a case of peer to peer lending can deliver this you know 6% or 12% or whatever it might be it's different areas of peer to peer lending can deliver different things and it's up to the the market the participants the lenders to understand where they want to be well a that that risk spectrum exists and b where they want to be be on that risk spectrum um so for it to become more widely recognized i think it's going to be be challenging i think you know time is obviously a, a good good thing to consider consistencies quite important um i think you know journalists quite like understandably so headlines and headlines aren't generally when everything's being boring and nice and steady and delivering nice returns. It tends to be when someone's lost their last thousand pounds of savings because they've gone into peer-to-peer lending and got it horribly wrong. So I think you're <laughs> going to see those sorts of headlines more than you're going to see, oh, I woke up today and I got another 6% per annum return and that's the fourth year in a row. I mean, that's never going to make a headline, <laughs> is it? So um, I think it's just time and consistency. Um and there's not a lot lot to it. I think equally, you know, the marketing piece is important. And again, it comes down to market participants themselves. They have to be true to what they are offering and what the risk profile is that they're putting out there. And I think if they um, misrepresent that, you know, either accidentally or, or intentionally, that creates the problems because then you're creating false expectations and people become upset that the outcome is different to their original expectation um, and that creates you know, anxiety and frustrations and uncertainty and problems. So I think time, consistency, those are the things that will enable it to become more and more mainstream. Um, there's no shortcuts really. I think it's just mm-hmm. about continuing to do things time after time after time. I'm also wondering if a economic souring is going to get people to that point where they can see which platforms could survive through an economic downturn and come out at the end of it and still be there. I appreciate that statement and I, and I think there's there's a lot of truth in it. Just, uh, and this isn't a firmly held view, but just in the interest of being hopefully interesting and slightly controversial, you might argue kind of, so what actually? Because if a downturn happens every seven years, you can get five or six years of good returns as long as you don't lose your shirt in year seven and survive mm. to, to go another day then you might end up in a in a reasonable place um and i think yeah r- robustness is, is important consistency is important um i, I don't hold quite a, such a strong view that um that a downturn will prove the asset class i understand why people say that um, mm. but I think as I said before it's it's about consistency you know, we could have another 5 years, 10 years of benign economic environment, I'm not, I'm not sure that we will by the way but you know, we could um, you know, I wouldn't want to wait for another 10-15 years to find out whether or not it was a good place to have invested my money over the last 10 or 15 years so right. um, I think it's about not overstretching, I think that's an important piece, so like anything in in the investment world peer-to-peer lending can form part of a sensible investment strategy 
But it's exactly that. It should only be parts of a sensible investment strategy. We talked about diversification in the context of within peer-to-peer lending. But equally, a sensible investment strategy should be, you know, there should be some equities in there. There should probably be some property in there. There should be some cash in there as well. Yeah. There should be, there's no one silver bullet that you can place chips on and say, well, this thing is going to deliver time and time and time and time again. Yeah. But I think peer-to-peer lending as part of a diversified and sensible investment strategy, which has other features to it, um, already is you know, a viable form of investing. Um, the problems come when people look at it as the only form of investing. You know, right. I'm going to go into two loans, and that's my entire investment strategy. <laughs> Fingers crossed, close my eyes. I hope it, I hope it ends up right, right at the end of the day, and that's not... You know, I know if they do that over 10 years, they will end up in a bad place because they'll hit a bad loan and yeah. they'll lose half the capital. One of the questions that I get emailed all the time, Stephen, is, uh, and this is always coming from a beginner who hasn't lent anything to peer-to-peer, is how much of my liquid net worth is a sensible amount to invest in peer-to-peer? And I know this really differs based on everybody's financial situation, but let's say you were telling your, your you know, 35-year-old brother who was interested in peer-to-peer lending, he said, Stephen, how much would be a, a reasonable allocation to put into peer-to-peer lending? What, what would you tell him? Well, I think if we take it as his or her investable assets and just quickly put that in some context, I think what's an uninvestable asset, I think if people can, they should try and set aside you know, six months in relatively liquid, relatively safe stuff, i.e. cash, to save for a rainy day, i.e. You know, they lose their job, they can still pay for their mortgages and, and those sorts of things. And whether it's six months, whether it's 12 months, whether it's three months, you know, it really depends on the individual, what they're able to save, all those sorts of good things. So I think before people really start thinking about investing, I think that is quite a helpful goal for people to seek to achieve. I think once they then have investable capital, um, first things they need to recognize is right well we're taking on risk so we're now putting our capital at risk to get a better return so regardless of what we do or how we do it um we are there is a risk that we will lose our some of our money um now in terms of you know peer-to-peer lending you know what proportion of investable assets should go into it you know it's up to the individual clearly but i think in my view it could be anything between say 25 to 50 percent of their investable assets not of their cash but of their investable assets um and yeah what what's left i think you have stock market and i think you have you know property is kind of the other two sort of go-to places to look for additional returns um and maybe you have 10 percent in some you know potentially incredibly high alpha or low alpha stuff if you really want to you know some bitcoin some venture capital whatever it might be but um that would be my sort of allocation on on what I think people can do with their sort of investable capital and, and how they should think about P2P lending in that context. Oh, I appreciate your honesty in, in giving me that range of numbers. I went through a period of during the financial downturn crisis where I lost a lot of money in uh, property development. What happens when you lose a lot of, of your own cash, you become... Um, you get this financial blockage when it comes to investing. And I love peer-to-peer lending. I really do. It's become a very big passion of mine. My allocation has always been a, a max of about 15%. The problem is when I talk to people like you 
and the people that are running the companies, I get this immense sense of confidence and I feel very good about the companies. I want to throw more money at peer-to-peer lending, I'm, but I'm very nervous. But I think the trick is not to get greedy. I'm not saying you are getting greedy, by the way. I just want to add that in. I think yeah, the 25 to 50%, yeah, why, why would it be as... I mean, that's, that's a big chunk of the investable cash. I think at that upper end, at the 50% share, that should really be in, you know, dare I say it, stuff, doesn't have to be ours, but stuff like Bond Masons, which is looking to get a 6 or 7% return year after year after year. Now, on one hand, that might not sound very sexy, but 7% compounded over 10 years doubles your money. So if you're looking to save your children's university, you can either wait till they go to university and try and find £40,000, or you can start today with £10,000, it will quadruple over 20 years at 6 or 7% per annum. You don't have to do anything to get there. You can just set it aside, have it well diversified, and you're in a very good place. And I think that's where I think it's a very attractive asset class is because it sits, in our view, somewhere between, in the way that we do it, somewhere between cash and the stock market, um, but can deliver you know, meaningful returns if, you, if you're patient enough. I'm going to ask you a, a, to be unbiased right now on a scale of one to ten one being the least risky ten being the riskiest where do you see bond mason on that scale okay that's a good question um i'm going to draw some lines in the sand uh and then i'll provide the answer if, if okay. i may so let's Please. say so one to ten so we've got one is the least risky so that's sort of cash uh ten is the riskiest so we'd probably no, say no, no no let me let me just clarify so i not considered as an investment as a whole, but within the peer-to-peer lending industry. Okay. Yeah, I mean, everybody else's answer has been one. So, which obviously is, if you were comparing it to all assets class, you know, (laughs) one is cash. Of course, this is no peer-to-peer company could be a one. So, we're talking about within the peer-to-peer lending business and crowdfunding business. Okay. And there's a great analogy there, by the way, which I think was around uh, 2008, 2009, when people went around the US asking homeowners whether they felt their house price had gone up, down, or stayed the same over the last 12 months. And then they asked the same question about their neighbor's house price, whether it gone up, down, or stayed the same. <laughs> and the disconnect between how they felt their own house had fared versus an identical neighbor's house was uh, was somewhat surprising. I think there's almost like a 30% differential. Uh, it was quite funny. Wow. Uh, anyway, so it just reminds me of that. Um, yeah. So within peer-to-peer lending land, you know, where are we? I think... Just peer to peer lending land being one to ten, we're probably around sort of two or three, something like that. So we're looking for a seven percent net return with asset backed, you know, well secured uh, loans. Um, we do have some SME finance in there. We do have some invoice discount finance in there. So there would will be the odd default coming from those, um, and that will happen. Yeah, you know, we've seen over the last eighteen months we've had 0.25 percent defaults. Um, so you, we're not at zero, just to be clear, but we, you know, we're not looking at sort of two, three, four percent defaults, which is where, or loss given defaults, which is where I'd probably have you know, scored five, six, seven, something like that. I think that's probably average. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, 10 on the risky scale, they'll be looking at, you know, 10, 20 percent defaults, I guess. And so that's, that's kind of how I praise us there, I would say. Mm-hmm. That's a very honest answer. Thank you for not saying one, because <laughs> this question would have been getting old. If I, I decided if everybody was going to say one, I was going to stop answering the question because I really wanted an objective 
answer to that question. So thank you for not saying one. If I if if I can, my pleasure. And if I can, I'd quite like just to throw in what I thought the question was going to be. So you may not you may not want this as an answer, but I was gonna, I guess the continuum of investments. If we had one as cash and ten as unquoted, say startup equity, and that was the range of risk, with say seven being the stock market. I think peer-to-peer lending is capable of being anywhere between about three to ten in that range, and we we would be sort of four or five as, in that context, in that broader context. So again, I would, you know, just I wanted to raise that point because I think that peer-to-peer lending can be more risky than the stock market, and can be as risky as venture capital if it's not done in a sensible way. And I think that's a really important point. Yeah, it depends on which company you invest through and what type of loans you buy and things like that. I think that's a great point. A couple of personal questions for you, Stephen, to lighten things up. (laughs) Can you give me one of those daddy jokes, your best one, off the top of your head? Um, Not anything, anything. God, that's a difficult one. That's a difficult one. While you're thinking about that, I'll give you one of my more... um, (laughs) Go on. Racy ones. So, what is the difference between a banker and male sperm? Banker and male sperm. Go on. The male sperm has a one in 250,000 chance of becoming human. How was that? Was that better yeah, than the Yeah, Roberto? that was fine. That's not, fine. Okay. That's not too uh, R-rated. That's not too bad. Well, That's when you start bad. talking about sperm and things, you know. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I, yeah, the daddy joke, I, I'm just trying to remember the Christmas cracker jokes, but it's, yeah, my memory's, my memory's failing me. Yeah, my goal is to get every person uh, to give me one joke, and then I'm going to rate it. And see, <laughs> and at the end of the year, figure out who had the best joke out of all the people that are running these peer-to-peer companies, so... Try to think about that. If if not, you can email me one later. Oh, yeah. Um, you said you're married. How long have you been married for? Uh, you're putting me on the spot here. I am. <laughs> just, Come on. Just... Oh, don't get this one wrong. Just coming up to six years. Six years in in June. So okay. yeah. And you have kids? Two. You have two little girls, four and two. So uh, that's probably why I look quite so tired right now. Yeah. Is um, yeah, they're just yeah. Every parent would say this. They're fantastic. You know, you, you love your own children dearly, and I feel very fortunate and uh, and glad that I've yeah been able to have have two wee girls. So yeah, very nice. proud dad. What's your favourite type of food, Stephen? Oh, probably an Indian curry, if I'm honest. One final question for you, then if there's anything else that you want to discuss, please let me know. Can you share any future Bond Mason plans? Uh, future innovations. That lenders might be excited to hear about. Sure. Um, so there's one thing that we're currently working on. Uh, we've been working on for a little while now, and that's to provide the ability for SIP investors to access the industry more sensibly. So a SIP for those non-UK people is a self-invested pension plan, which is so yeah, as the name suggests, is for people looking to invest their own pension monies and be in control of that. And without going into detail, structurally, there's been some issues which make it difficult for people to put peer-to-peer lending into their SIP. Um, SIP administrators have been a little bit reluctant around that. But we've been working with a couple large SIP groups over the last few months, and it looks like we've sort of cracked that nut. So um, because of some of the things we talked about earlier in terms of how we're structured, 
um, that seems to sit very nicely within the SIP world. So in the next, you know, in the immediate future, the next couple of weeks, really, we're going to start launching that campaign a bit more broadly around helping people to access peer-to-peer lending through a SIP. Something else that we're very proud of is this week we've had informal confirmation that a, a sort of the detailed market report that we released back in February is now or will shortly be receiving what we call CPD accreditation, which means that uh, investment executives, so people who have uh, you know, an investment um, qualification, can now read that report and put that to their continuing professional development annual quota. So that's really, really good for us. So uh, again, just talks to hopefully us helping more people access the space who maybe not may not have thought of sort of peer-to-peer lending previously we've got some things that we're working on that you know, hopefully will come out in the next few months and uh yeah be happy to happy to share those when um when they're a bit bit closer to fruition tell people who haven't invested in bond mason who are listening to this why they would want to consider bond mason as a place to invest their money sure i think again start from the context which is p2p lending is a is a large growing and, and interesting market but it's also difficult to navigate and can be quite complex and the attraction of bond mason to to many of our clients is that they choose us because we're sat on their side of the table and they look to us to really enable them to access peer-to-peer lending um, in a uh, considered sensible way where they know that you know we have a focus on protecting their capital yet at the same time um, you know our clients are able to achieve a reasonably attractive return so i think that's that's why clients come to us uh, they're either experienced p2p lenders who want to do a bit more but maybe haven't got the time or capacity to or they're coming at it for the first time uh, and again may not know where to start um, but want to be able to sort of start accessing the returns in a sensible safe way uh, as quickly as possible good well Stephen, i wanted to thank you again for taking your time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast and share your thoughts and feelings about what bond mason is doing and people have been able to get a insight into what you're doing i think that's very helpful to see the face behind these companies a lot of the times as lenders we're throwing our money at at companies that we really don't know a lot about so that was my intention is to get the company representatives and the people that are running it in front of the people so they can see what you guys are up to and form an opinion whether they like you or not. Hopefully they like you. I think you're a good guy. So good luck with Bond Mason. I hope you guys are very successful in the future and continue to do good. So thank you very much. I think that's been really enjoyable. I've enjoyed the time, so I appreciate that. And um, no, be delighted to uh, to come back another time and, and chat a bit more. You've been listening to the Financial Thing Peer-to-Peer Lending Essentials Podcast. Don't forget to visit financialthing.com for all the latest peer-to-peer lending reviews and DIY investing articles.